I believe we're underway. Heather, how are you? I'm great, Glenn. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. This is Glenn Lowry. It's The Glenn Show. And I'm with Heather McDonald, uh, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, is a journalist and a social critic, uh, prolific and uh, comments on issues about policing and crime, amongst many other things, writes for the City Journal at the Manhattan Institute, amongst many other places. Um, and uh, I'm happy to be talking with you. This is The Glenn Show. I just want to say, we used to be at bloggingheads.tv. We're now at glennlowry.substack.com, where you can subscribe. Uh, and we're also at my YouTube channel, YouTube forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show, where you see the podcast a week at the end of the week, and you can see it at the beginning of the week if you subscribe at Substack. Okay. Commercial over. Oh, by the way, you can see it ad-free if you subscribe at Substack. Commercial over. And I also hope, I also hope, Glenn, that you have promoted your fantastic speech from the National Conservatism Conference that you can read, I hope, on your Substack, but also probably at first things for people who aren't subscribers. And that's one of the great American speeches. So you should be shamelessly uh, flogging that on air. Okay, well, why don't we do a little bit of flogging right now? Heather, what did you find so wonderful about that speech? This is a speech I gave to the National Conservatism Conference in Orlando, Florida, early, uh, early last year. And um, it was published in First Things uh, magazine. And I have, of course, a link to it at the, the Substack. But how come you like it so much? Well, number one, it was just extraordinarily eloquent and wise, and I I would love to know how long it took you to write it because I would have been struggling for months to come up with language of that clarity. Uh, but as I wrote you by email after hearing it on the broadcast, uh, we don't really deserve you because <laughs> the spirit of magnanimity in it uh, and the willingness to take a broader view of the United States and, and see yourself as part of it and to see the, portray the fundamental essence of America in its principles rather than its actual lived behavior for so many centuries, I thought was just extraordinarily open-minded. I've been on a listening jag and through audible which is such a great a great uh technology i have to say it's like being a child again and being read to i carry my smartphone around my house listening but i've been reading and rereading some of the classics of of black literature whether it's native son or du bois or booker t washington or frederick Douglass's, uh one of his many autobiographies malcolm x uh eldridge cleaver and I have to say, and, and also the fantastic uh, Manchild in a Promised Land. Yeah, Claude Brown. Those, that, that, right, Claude Brown. That reading inclines me in a little direction, I have to say, towards the 1619 Project, not, not towards its historiography, which I think has been extraordinarily uh, discredited, yeah. but simply in its claim that America still isn't fully accounting for uh, the racism of its past that continued far longer than I think the conservative narrative takes into account. You know, the, the Trump administration at the end of its term came out with the 1776 
report that was meant to be a rebuttal to the 1619 project. And it is sort of a, a locus classicus of the conservative narrative about American racism, which is that we paid very heavily, paid penance through the Civil War, you know, with the 600,000 lives lost, which you mentioned in your national conservatism speech. And uh, despite, you know, centuries and decades of hypocrisy, that eventually we did uh, give meaning to our founding principles. Well, that is true. Nevertheless, what struck me the most in reading these great 20th century works and 19th century, when you're looking at, at Frederick Douglass on Booker T. Washington, is just the sheer pettiness and cruelty of white Americans for so long. Uh, just gratuitous humiliation of blacks, not just in the South, but in the North. There's a, a writer, um, Jean Daddle, who has written a lot on Southern labor history and history of cotton. And he wrote a book called Reckoning with Race that shows that the North should not be at all exempt from the criticism that we directed the South. That in the pre-colonial period, post-colonial period, it was busy disenfranchising blacks. And, and that sort of racial contempt obviously lasted well into the late 20th century. So anyway, I, to me, it has been uh, di both disturbing and also extraordinary that uh, blacks are willing to celebrate the 4th of July. Because as far as I'm concerned, I can well understand people continuing Frederick Douglass's strong objections in the 19th century. So, well, I would say that today we are absolutely different. To, to acknowledge the persistence of gratuitous sadism and, and, and gratuitous nastiness on the part of whites for so long does not mean that we are that country today. I do not think so. I think I think black privilege is the reality today. Nevertheless, the spirit of your speech uh, was was generous and open-minded, and and as I say, in some sense, we don't deserve it. Well, that's very kind, what you have to say in a laudatory manner about me personally, and uh, I might just return the favor by saying you really read those books, and um, that is quite to your credit. It means you're a serious intellectual who's engaged with your culture at a deep level, and you know, that's, you know, you're not just popping off. You're, you're not just a pundit. You know, you're, you're, as I say, a serious intellectual. So hats off to you. But uh, I'll say for my part, yeah, the speech was called Who's Fourth of July when I initially drafted something that was in the city journal from which I extended to make my remarks at the National Conservatism Conference. Um, who's 4th of July? And I have Frederick Douglass in mind. I said in 1852, when he gave that speech, it was a good question. Yeah. It was a pretty good question. I say in the year 2022, uh, it's ours. It's our 4th of July. I say that as a Black American. And um, that was the sort of starting point for, you know, slavery was awful, was awful, was awful. Jim Crow. Slavery was awful, it was a holocaust. Uh, it was deserving of every bit of condemnation that it has received. On the other hand, the Civil War 
On the other hand, the intellectual and moral framework that made possible the abolitionist movement and emancipation. Those are the fruit of the West. Those are, you know, made possible by the framework as Lincoln recognized that the, the framers of the U.S. Constitution created. I mean, the institutions did have their say at the end of the day. That, uh, and, and we, African-Americans, are an inheritor of that Western tradition. This is my tradition. It's the only tradition I know. I have no place to go but here. This is my home going back many generations. Um, so I say, you know, this gratuitous standoffishness that many uh, uh, woke intellectuals Im reflexively embrace uh, from the American project as if it weren't our project uh, and, and as if we weren't embedded within something of world historic significance. I mean, the greatest force for human liberty in the history of mankind. That's what the United States of America, this great republic is. I can say that without Gain saying any of the things that you said about the gratuitous meanness and, and uh, uh, despicable uh, failure to acknowledge the humanity of uh, my fellow Black people well into the 20th century. So, you know, we're, we're on the same page. <laughs> but, but again, I, I just have to stress, uh, it is a choice what you were saying. And I completely agree everything that the left purports to stand for today and it's it's one mass of roiling hypocrisies but it purports to stand for tolerance and openness those are exclusively western concepts no other civilization came up with the idea of human rights of equal rights of tolerance of of freedom from government oppression uh so that is completely true. And so the left would be nowhere without the West. You know, good luck. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. Good luck staging a gay rights parade in Lagos today or in m many parts of the third world. It's not going to happen. Nevertheless, I still say, uh, if I were focused on the past uh, uh, as a black person, I understand the anger. Now, I think what we need to do is have a sharp line, and, and obviously the left's project is to dis dissolve this line and say that all racial disparities today are both the result of the past and of present discrimination. Now, whether our racial disparities today, the extent to which they are the result of clear and obvious past discrimination, is a complicated historical project, but to say that they are the result of present discrimination, I think is patently counterfactual when there's not a single mainstream institution in the United States today that is not twisting itself into knots to hire and promote as many blacks as possible. When you have the white establishment engaged in this ritual self-flagellation about phantom racism and unwilling to speak honestly about the pathologies of inner city culture that are what I think overwhelmingly drive ongoing racial disparities. And you address that in your speech as well. Uh, so so it, it's a question of whether we should be teaching black students to go around with a chip on their shoulder by looking at the past which, as I say, if I did that, I would be angry too, because 
it it's not just slavery in one sense like slavery's old hat at this point what what was so striking about these mid 20th century 20th century works was just the oh and and also Nora's ill her their eyes are watching god now that's very little actually about race relations but just an extraordinary uh insight into human relationships between the sexes and and generations but but again you just think who are these white people <laughs> i mean they're just it it one could almost take the left wing sort of critical race theory to say that their identity must somehow be based on scorning blacks because the scorn was so frequent so that is just to say that that's my reading of history but it is not my reading of, of present god i always forget to do this and i don't no know how to turn it don't worry off. let's see oh they don't call back thanks well i think the irony will not be lost on some people that heather mcdonald the darth vader of crime and policing <laughs> studies in some quarters is here sounding like Nicole Hannah-Jones as she's puzzled at the magnanimity of one Glenn Lowry. Nicole, in her opening essay for the 1619 Project, as you know, starts by being puzzled at her father's patriotism. How could her father love his country? You yeah. seem to be asking in so many words, how could I be so generous? Anyway, uh, irony. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, I don't know. I was going to say that uh, everything is not quid pro quo and a, a counting of the sums and it, you know who's winning and how much harm. Some of it is about grace. Some mm -hmm. some of it is about embracing a spiritual uh, thing and uh, so on. But we're not, you know, that's not what we came here to talk about. <laughs> okay. Uh, so here we are. This is twenty twenty two. 21 and 2020 are behind us uh, on the issue of policing, crime and punishment, uh, Black Lives Matter and so forth. You've been very outspoken. And I'm just wondering what you make of, of where we are, uh, the Biden administration, uh, the messaging, uh, the um, fallout. Uh, I was struck by your comparison, for example, of reactions the country has had to the riot at the Capitol on January sixth uh, of twenty twenty one, and the rioting that took place across the country in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, uh, and whatnot. Can I get you to talk a little bit about how you see the the chips of as having fallen on this whole post Floyd uh, crisis of racial reckoning? and um, uh, where you think we're going? Well, the, the maudlin uh, apologetics on the part of elite institutions led by the universities, but throughout the corporate world and every other institution, whether it's an art museum or a, a symphony orchestra or, or an opera company uh, that dominated the summer of 2020, simultaneously with the fiery, anarchic, brutal, savage, sadistic race riots, that that rhetoric is somewhat tapered down. 
but the crime wave that was unleashed by the demonization of the cops, by the ambivalence on the part of much of the political establishment towards these riots, uh, is not showing much sign of of uh, bottoming out. It's 2021 was worse than 2020, and we know that 2020 was the largest percentage increase in homicides in this nation's hi history, nearly 30%. I mean, a 30% switch change in anything is just massive. Yeah. Uh, now, you're you know, sure that it was the one caused the other? You're sure that uh, the crime wave is a result of the genuflecting and the bending over backwards and self-flagellation of uh, major institutions uh, who are apologizing for white supremacy and who have handcuffed the cops? How can you be sure? Yeah, yeah I, would, I would add to that the backing off of the police from proactive policing under the ubiquitous charge that they're racist for going where crime is happening and trying to, trying to save black lives. You have, uh, it's been graphed, you know, a, a steep, steep drop off in stops, car stops, pedestrian stops, arrests in key cities that people have looked at, like Paul Cassell analyzed Minneapolis, uh, Chicago, and as always, uh, inverse correlation with rising shootings and, and gun homicides, and the, uh, the timing is consistent with the homicide increase is consistent with the George Floyd phenomenon, not with the pandemic phenomenon, which has been the mainstream media's favorite uh, explanation for this crime, uh, just tsunami that we've been living through. Uh, you say that so, because the timing is off? I'm sorry, on the pandemic. You say it's not the pandemic, it's George Floyd. Is that because you think the timing is off in terms of the pandemic relative to the yes. crime surge? Crime was going down uh, mostly in, the, in most parts of the country through May of 2020. And it only started going up after the George Floyd riots. That's where you saw the major increase in homicides and shootings. More importantly, in every other industrialized country that we have good crime records for uh, that had even more severe lockdowns in many cases than the United States, their crime across the board went down. Now, our, some categories of crime went down in this country, but violent street crime shot up. That didn't happen anywhere else, only in the United States. So if it's pandemic lockdowns, then the New York Times and the Washington Post have to explain why, you know, stabbings and shootings didn't go up in France or Italy or even Peru had one of the greatest uh, per capita death rates from COVID. Uh, but it, it, it experienced a, a drop in, in violent crime. So we stand out and it's because of our George Floyd uh, phenomenon. It's not because of the pandemic. and. You know, the idea that somehow you still get these left-wing politicians talking about crimes of poverty, which is just ridiculous. Everybody that's committing a so-called crime of poverty has a smartphone. Nobody who has a smartphone is poor. I'm sorry. Uh, and, and it's not a crime of poverty to go and stand on the street corner and wildly spray bullets uh, across 
you know, your, your, your field of vision, not caring who you hit. That is a crime of retaliation. It is a crime of gang life. It is a, a crime of street life. It is a, a crime of lack of so socialization thanks to abysmal parenting, let's be honest. Uh, so again, the pandemic explanation and the economic hardship explanation does not explain the the massive violence, street violence that we've been seeing. Well, you preach. And, and let me also say that that uh, <laughs> I was going to say you preach it to the choir, but the, but preach on, preach on. Let me let me just say during the worst during the worst lockdowns, the New York Times was saying, well, it's the lockdowns that are responsible. And then as pre Omicron, as the lockdowns were were uh, in the, on the horizon to be lowered, the Times said. Well, now that the lockdowns are, are, are easing, expect crime to increase. So according to the Times, crime increases when there's lockdowns and it also increases when there's not lockdowns. So that's kind of a hard method of argumentation to combat. This is a really interesting development. Podcasts have changed the way you get your news, entertainment, politics, everything. They have rewritten the script, literally. Well, there's another exciting development that's rewriting the script, too. It's called Masterworks. Masterworks enables you to diversify your investment portfolio and potentially protect it from market volatility by investing in contemporary art. There, the fintech startup, shaking up the alternative investing landscape, letting you build a portfolio of fine art without spending millions of dollars. Basquiat, Picasso, Warhol. Invest in paintings by iconic artists like these with Masterworks. Their industry-leading research team has created the first and only platform where anyone can buy and trade shares of paintings, giving you the same access enjoyed by some millionaires and billionaires for generations. And Glenn Show listeners get priority access to their latest offerings at masterworks.art forward slash Glenn. That's masterworks.art slash Glenn. So join a new generation of investors at masterworks.art slash Glenn. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash Disclaimer. I, I want to underscore the gravity uh, of some. I mean, people are going to be angry because I'm not pushing back, but I'm not pushing back because I agree with you. I'm not going to push back just for the sake of pushing back on this. I think, I mean, I think you're right, and I think you're saying some things that are really important. One of them is that the attack on cops and on policing, uh, the delegitimation of the agents of the state charged with the uh, unenviable responsibility of maintaining order uh, in our metropolises has cost thousands of lives. The people who have undertaken and fomented this attack from the Black Lives Matter activists to their handmaidens in editorial rooms all over this country have buckets of blood on their hands. They hide behind a consensus endorsed by everybody from the uh, Human Resource Department 
uh, assistant or vice president at a Fortune 500 company to a university president who have given ideological cover to this crime. The delegitimation of the maintenance of order in places where black people live has cost thousands of lives, and it's a political crime. That's what I hear you saying. I wish I could push back, but as you can see, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Um, now, they deplatform people for saying this, Heather. You know that. Bring it on. I mean, I, I, see, I, I just don't understand. You and I, other people, Jason Riley, we scratch our heads and say, but, but, but I thought Black Lives Matter. I, I literally cannot understand it. I mean, I, I think the left has the two of its biggest hypocrisies on the part of the left, the, those that are utterly unable to be squared with the facts, is its claim to care about Black Lives Matter and its claim that America is systemically oppressive to people of color at the same time that not only are people of color from across the world beating down the doors to get into this country, but the left is saying that we should lower any kind of border controls to get them in. Those are mutually exclusive positions. You cannot, at the one hand, say that this is the most racist country at this moment. Again, I'm my... I, I'm going to draw a sharp distinction between most of our past and the present uh, and, and, and then say that we should have open borders. But it's also utterly stunning to me that the left gets to say that it is the, the one entity that cares about Black Lives Mattering when it is utterly silent about the black children who have been killed brutally uh since the george floyd riots and that's you know not accounting for those that have been killed before that in in 2020 i i compiled a list uh at the end of of 2020 about just the numbing numbing savagery that it was going on you can go down day by day across the country of black children being killed i mean here's just two right in a row that I pulled out recently. This is from 2020, September 22nd. A three-year-old boy in Orlando was fatally shot in the head playing in his living room. The day before, September 21, a one-year-old boy in Kansas City, Missouri, was killed in his car, Tyrone Patton. He was among 13 children killed in Kansas City through late September. Chicago this year, uh, there's been at least 27 children, 15 and younger, who've been killed and 100 are shot. Among those, let's, let's, let's think about these. These are all black children. A one-month-old girl shot in the head. A four-year-old boy shot twice in the head. A six-year-old girl, a seven-year-old girl, and a nine-year-old girl shot mostly in the head. Now, if those were white children, there would have been a national revolution the media would be all over it. How the media gets away with this crap of presenting itself as, as warriors for racial justice when they are clearly indifferent to black lives unless a black person is killed by a white cop is beyond me. 
uh, I think that, you know, one thing I'll agree with Joy Reid on is that there is missing white girl syndrome. It is quite clear. Uh, if, if, if these kids that I just read out were white, uh, they would have been national cause celebre. But because they're black, the nation turns its eyes away. And the reason is, is because they're killed by other blacks. And the, and the American public thinks it is being somehow just or compassionate in saying we simply are not going to talk about the breakdown of civilization in certain parts of American cities that lead to these types of savage killings. These are strong words, civilization, savagery. Um, again, uh, I agree, I'm, I'm compelled to agree, I think, by, by the facts. I was just sitting here imagining a kindergarten somewhere in a nice lily white suburb, and a school shooter who goes in and shoots up three or four of those kids and blows their brains out, they're five years old, they're seven years old. And, and what the nation would be doing in the aftermath of that, everything from the control of firearms to the psychological services available and whatnot. And, and you're right, the carnage is, is almost unbearable. I mean, it's unbelievable, it's almost unbearable. I haven't done anything systematic like you've done, but just perusing the newspaper, I opened one of my speeches with this, and Chicago. I just went and took a report for uh, the Memorial Day weekend, and uh, they, you know, there were seventy-two shootings, sixty-eight homicides, whatever, you know. And I just read it off, you know, because I mean, we ought to actually I, stop and ponder sometimes the savagery. You break down the civilization, you say, and you mention the family, and I want us to talk about that a little bit because why, you know, are these uh, things happening? And and the political framework where, as you say, these things are not drawing national attention because they are Blacks killing Blacks, and that doesn't fit the narrative. But uh, I'll come back to that. You're uh, indicting the social organization of these communities, the parents, the families, uh, the values, the norms, you say, a breakdown in civilization. Whose fault is that? Whose fault? Boy. Is that the wrong question? Well, it's a difficult question. Uh, I think the first step is simply to acknowledge that there's a problem uh, and then start thinking about what sort of values need to be revalorized, to use a disgusting academic term, to change that. Um, you know, again, historical causes, I don't know it, but at some point, I mean, it would, be, it would be good if we could get the left to even acknowledge family breakdown. If it then wants to blame slavery exclusively for it, that would be a step in the, in the right direction, at least. At some point, though, I would say, uh, again, Pache, my earlier remarks, looking to historical causes may be in some sense accurate, but at some point, it's up to a culture to take account and responsibility for itself. But I remember, I mean, Deborah Dickinson has pointed out years ago when I was mentioning family breakdown, just the very complicated relations between males and females uh, in the black community. And I think that's right. And it's a very tough thing to try and figure out how to fix. 
I remember doing a ride along in Chicago with this gorgeous black cop. Uh, and, you know, he had a stable job, was going to have a great pension. Uh, but he had kids by several different mothers and was married to none of them. Uh, and, you know, there's and, and that's not I, I don't th think that is an abusive relationship, but there are there's there's real complexity there that I have no uh, ability, knowledge to comment on. But but fixing the what has become now the pattern of which, you know, as well as I do, of multi-partner fertility, where yeah. any given female may have children by several different males and any given male may have children by seven different females. That's just a recipe for for very, very tragic childhoods. Yeah, and the economist Robert Cherry has actually been writing a little bit about this. Um, and I've, I've, you know, multiple partner uh, paternity. And, you know, we don't want to traffic in stereotypes here. We'll be accused of doing that. Of course, it's a complex situation. And this is not a typical arrangement for Black uh, child rearing, although the relative frequencies are much higher, and that does matter. Uh, well, out of wedlock birth rate certainly is. Yes, is, that has is become typical. the norm. We're talking 70%. 71, yeah. Uh, 71, I stand corrected by the lady who's close to the data. Um, and then people will, you know what they're going to say. They're going to say their alternative arrangements. And the sociologists are not going to line up uniformly behind the causal argument that the family structure actually is related to the outcomes. They're going to have their own uh, arguments because they're, they're, they're hopelessly corrupted. They are, I'm sorry, by uh, the uh, ideology of... Uh, of uh, avoiding victim blame as they understand it uh, at all costs. This is Moynihan. This is an old, old story. Um, I agree with you once again, Heather, that I think the family is the key. And I, I think uh, gender relations or inner male, female, however you want to call it, dynamic within African-American culture are to some degree troubled, the abortion rate amongst black women is extraordinarily high, for instance, another indicator uh, of out of wedlock births and uh, single parenthood and all of that. Um, I've almost given up trying to have this argument with people because it's a kind of implacable wall of hostility. They, they'll say that you're saying that black people are inferior. I'm sure that I'm going to be attacked and vilified, you know, for the the cowardly and self-hating uh, agreement with you about this, because they're, they're going to say you're saying there's something wrong with black people. That's exactly what Ibram Kendi, sa Kendi says. That's exactly what Ta-Nehisi Coates says. There's something, why are you saying there's something wrong with black people? And this idea that we can fix it. How can we fix it when 300 years of white supremacy, et cetera, et cetera, to which I have an answer, which is nobody is coming to save you. Point one, right. you have no alternative but to address yourself to this matter. Do you want to live in dignity or do you want to be a permanent ward of the beneficence of white liberals who, by the way, give them enough time and they'll change their mind about the whole thing? I mean, that's, that's, that's my argument. I'm acknowledging the catastrophe of the normalization of single parenthood in African-American as if 48 hours a day of adult supervision time were not twice as many as 24 hours a day right, of adult, right. as if adolescent boys and girls were not fundamentally different in their emotional developmental arc and that the bipolarity 
of uh, male and female uh, child rearing. No, I'm I'm not ruling out same sex marriages here, but I'm talking about the norm. I'm talking about the fat part of the distribution. We're not fundamental to getting the socialization of the male and the female children on track, uh, as if uh, uh, the the uh, disciplinary supervision of a father. We're not fundamental in keeping a kid from choosing a gang as his uh, polar uh, point of uh, contact for uh, uh, expressing his masculinity. Discipline, as if that didn't matter. Uh, and, and, and the ability to sustain it within a household as if two wages weren't better than one, et cetera. I mean, I, I, so I've, I've, I've tired, I've grown weary of arguing with these people is this slow moving train wreck, which Wayneham called attention to more than a half century ago, weren't unfolding before my very eyes. And, you know, let me just say, of course, that the white underclass has massive problems as well. And you've got, you know, just what something Charles Murray warned about, yeah. uh, the rising illegitimacy rate there too. And yeah the usual pathologies will follow in its wake. So it's not as if American culture overall is doing really great when it comes to marriage at this point, although the white overall marriage out of wedlock birth rate is now about 27%. So it's still, you know, nearly uh, two thirds less than blacks, but it's getting, it's rising and that's a problem. And the demonization of males is something that is uh, goes across the uh, the culture. I'm not so sure that that's so relevant in black culture, though. The the kind of feminist hatred of 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 masculinity and the traditional male virtues. But you know your point about boys needing fathers. Alice Goffman, uh, who wrote you know the the daughter of of, of Irving Goffman, who yes, wrote I on the runabout. I know her well. She's a friend. And and she was canceled eventually, I think, by uh, Pomona. But before that happened, you know, her book chronicles uh, a family of crack dealers in in West Philadelphia, and one of the brothers says to her, "Well, the reason I turned out well is because my father came around every so often when I was growing up. He being merely a crack dealer uh, that." use you know an armed crack dealer that uses weapons whereas his younger brother uh according to this older brother called him a stone cold robber was just absolutely a sadist and engaged in just really even more outrageous violent street crime and and the older brother's explanation was that his father never came around and was it is it tupac shakur or some rapper that also said, you know, I, I didn't have a father. So, and you can talk to people. I've talked to people. I've, I've spent time writing about prisons and I've been inside prisons. And uh, there's some surprising moments of seeming acknowledgement of personal responsibility. And you never know with prisoners of any race, if whether they're, they're bullshitting you. you or not. Yeah, they're playing. And they can often be bullshitting you and tell it, you know, they, they know what you want to hear. Yeah. But I have heard people say uh, that the the lack of fathers is definitely a problem. So no, there's uh, plenty of tests. I, I just want to be clear. This book by Alice Goffman is on the run. Right. Uh, so we get that in the notes that so people will know if they're interested in following up on that. 
an ethnography where she is deeply embedded with uh, young men in the inner city in Philadelphia and understanding their interaction with cops as they seek to evade being uh, captured because they have warrants out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately a very left wing book. She 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 says it's really all the criminal justice system problem. I disagree with that. But but it has some interesting. Well, I just have to say here, I love Alice Goffman. I've known her since she was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin. She is an extremely talented ethnographer. She happens also to be a white woman and she has taken way more flack from the uh, academic uh, uh, patrons who defend their little corner of the Black Studies Department from how dare a white woman go whatever, but she's profoundly insightful. And she has her politics. They're not my politics, but I still love her. (laughs) I think also, I mean, she got in a lot of trouble for, I can't remember now. Oh, because she she did a ride along with these guys when they were going out for a gang retaliation. She was actually driving and she knew that they were looking for the shooter right. of one of their of one of their number to retaliate. Fortunately, they did not find anybody to shoot at. Otherwise, she would have been an accessory to something awful. Yeah. But you might say that that's on the wrong side of the uh, uh, what do you call them uh, uh, human subjects or whatever the re- review committee at the university. Before you can do a study of people, you have to go through the the protocol. Well, I'm sure that that one would not have passed muster with. <laughs> with <laughs> sort of impressive in its way, I guess. Um, yeah, and, and the other thing about the family breakdown is, you know, we, we tend to sort of always talk about the individual child who needs the parents, but the other thing is just growing up in a marriage, cult, a culture that still has some remnant of, of marriage expectations left. And Kay Heimowitz, my colleague at, at City Journal, has written about this, that you know, bourgeois kids, white kids grew up with a marriage script that says for males, if you want to uh, be a, a viable mate for a female, you do have to develop certain bourgeois habits of self-control and deferred gratification. But if it becomes the norm that any male can have access to as many females as he wants without having to marry them, uh, then that creates no incentive for staying in school and doing some studying and and learning how to deal with authority. So it it's a it's a problem as well on a on a larger basis that boys even if they uh you know don't have or that they don't have a norm of marriage and I think you know Raj Chetty's uh research is is con- consistent with that where he finds that even if you're yourself a product of a single parent home, if you're in a neighborhood that has more married parents, you're going to do better because that becomes the expectation. Uh, and, And so that's important as well. I am a widower who remarried four years ago to a somewhat younger woman and I need life insurance. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. Life insurance can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your loved ones would have a financial cushion to pay for things like rent, mortgage payments, loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Having coverage through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more to properly provide for their families. 
Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age, so it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Click on the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions about yourself. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed $120 billion in coverage. Head to policygenius.com to get your free insurance quotes and see how much you could save. I wonder if we are not, um, I'm older than you, I, I hope and expect. But I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, we're we're not as young as we used to be. And if we're not just kind of like behind the times, because if you go and talk to these uh people under 30 years old and you know they're they're uh, against the binary thing and they're against the gender uh lines up with sex thing and uh what they think about divorce, I, I'm almost afraid to ask them. I'm uh, you know, I'm sure that they're very uh liberal about it and you know. Uh, and everything, and here we are defending uh, the nuclear family and the traditional uh, normative expectations of, uh, you know, the roles that men and women would play and all of that. And uh, well, is not, it, it, are we pushing on a string is what I'm asking. Is it is it right. a hopeless kind of thing, you know? The, the, it's, it's not just uh, the younger generation. You know, this is something that bedevils conservative politicians and what may partly explain their being tongue-tied when it comes to talking about the family, because uh, conservatives are, the divorce rate is huge. I mean, the lot of donors to my institution are, are on their second and third wives. So I remember there was a moment under the reign of Mayor Rudolph Giuliani when he was still a sane person, not an insane person, and <laughs> really the greatest mayor, I think, not just in New York's history, but maybe ever as far as his ideological courage and and eloquence and being able to express the the basic rudiments of civil society and 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 how what you need for a city to function but he was on the verge of giving a speech uh that would go beyond what was the safe harbor for those who advocated welfare reform which is well if you're going to take government support from taxpayers, there's a quid pro quo and you should do something to better yourself and, and work and start to develop those habits. The next step that never got done with welfare reform was tackling the problem of the family breakdown. So he was going to give a speech about this. And then I think this was like right on the verge of one of his many, you know, landmine explosions in his own family relations. And, uh, so that got shelved and nobody ever came up, you know, did it again. But many Republican politicians uh, are also divorcees. So it's it's quite tough. Uh, it, I would say 
as awful as, as divorce is, and I'm the child of divorce, and it really did a number on me in many physically and emotionally, uh, it's better to be the child of divorce than to be the child of no father at all. In, in Obviously, we can all come up with the exceptions of truly brutal fathers, but generally, uh, you're better off knowing that there was a father, initially, initially at least, but in, in your life as opposed to one that was merely sporadically there. But yes, it's going to be a very hard thing to um, recreate our, our traditional expectations. And we're a country that does not like to impose stigma. And we enforce the marriage norm by stigmatizing divorce. And we certainly stigmatized uh, mothers who had children out of wedlock, much of 19th century literature, or, or a part of it, is taking the side of that 19th century uh, single mother who was vilified by her village and, and turned into a pariah. And we can look at the individual and say, well, that seems heartless. But it's hard to know without stigma for breaking norms that are very necessary on a collective basis how you enforce them at all. And, well, by the, by the way, by the way, uh, our liberal colleagues should be able, able to understand this point because they want everybody to get vaccinated. Ha and have you, have you noticed <laughs> the wholesale campaign starting with the president of the United States who declares that we are in the midst of a pandemic of the unvaccinated? How assiduous is the attempt at every portal of cultural influence to stigmatize the unvaccinated? Now, I, I'm not an anti-vax person myself, if that needs to be said. I'm just saying, appreciate the power and the necessity of stigma. That's absolutely <laughs> right. And, and certainly, I mean, they, they spend every waking day stigmatizing the phantom racists among us. So absolutely. Uh, I would say they are probably the most censorious groups among us. Uh, but, but in any case... I was struck so, by what yeah. you said about Giuliani. He said one of the great mayors of all time. And you found that on the idea that he was able to articulate and implement in a city, a V city, New York, uh, a defense of certain values that are elemental to the maintenance of, of civilization. And uh, can you elaborate on that? Well, he really spoke about the civil compact that if you expect uh, assistance, you have to give something back in return. He understood the importance of not just safe streets, but orderly streets. I remember a press conference. I was um, on a task force that looked at open admissions at the City University of New York, CUNY. And we concluded what you know journalists have been writing about for quite some time, that the advent of open admissions, which totally decimated academic standards for most of the uh, colleges within the CUNY system, all done, of course, this was the early prototype of our, our current uh, lethal idea of disparate impact, which is tearing down every, every uh, institution of civilization at the present moment uh, <laughs> in order to avoid disparate impact. Well, we, we got rid of academic standards in CUNY to avoid having a disparate impact on minority admissions. And the result was not a surge of, of um, academic achievement on the part of Blacks. It was bringing everybody down to a, a, an even more mediocre level. 
by not having any expectations for students' performance. In any case, so uh, this task force wrote a report calling for the reinstatement of minimal academic standards. And at the press conference, a reporter from a Puerto Rican newspaper, I think, said to Giuliani, well, you know, you're uh, dismissing the value of ethnic uh, consciousness raising and you know, self-respect programs and talking about high academic standards. Don't you see that that is uh, viewed as, as an assault on the individual identities of some students? And Giuliani just extemporary said, education is not about your own, and I'm going to embellish it sort of the way I would put it now, because this was many years ago, and I don't remember the exact words, but his basic point was something that, as I would say today, education is not about your pathetic, narcissistic, limited, ignorant self. It's about taking you out of yourself into a world that is so far grander, more profound, more sublime and wise than yeah. you will ever hope to be. Uh, and so to, to demand that education be about cultivating your own identity is a complete misapprehension of what this grand project of education is. Now, yeah. again, these are not Giuliani's exact words, but that was the basic message. And what struck me at the time was that He's not a Michael Oakeshott, you know, he's not a philosopher <laughs> yeah, he's of education a or of anything, but he got it on yeah. a very gut level. Yeah. And, and I saw that again and again. He had a capacity to articulate things on a very clear level uh, and, and, and also was just a man of courage. You know, he took on um, not just the existing anti-cop activists then, but the massive a uh, welfare industrial complex. Another colleague of mine, Steve Malanga at City Journal, wrote about the fact in many parts of the outer boroughs, the Bronx and, and, and Brooklyn, all that existed were these government-supported social service organizations uh, that were doing very little as far as actual social uplift. And, and Giuliani took on this massive complex that was in favor of social dysfunction. I spent time going to some of these welfare outfits and nowhere could you find any mention of fathers. And if you asked anybody about it, uh, they would say, you know, that's racist to talk about. I went to schools, high schools that had, they all had their, their daycare centers for the teen mothers because they were setting, saying basically, we the adults expect you uh, 16 and 14 year olds to have children out of wedlock. And so we've created the, the teen daycare center for you. Uh, and, and Giuliani took that all on fearlessly yeah. and unapologetically. And it was really an inspiring time to live through. Good to hear and good to know because his legacy is going to be forever tarnished it by is. the role that he played in the 2020 election. But I want to, I want to go back to a point that you made Again, people will want me to push back, but I'm not going to push back because I, I think you're right and I think it's really important. You, you put it in such dramatic terms. Civilization is threatened by disparate impact thinking. 
Okay, disparate impact thinking is if I have a rule, a standard, a measure, an expectation, a goal, that if applied uh, fairly to different racial groups, people will perform differently under that expectation, then I abandon this expectation for not wanting to expose the disparity of performance. It's ipso facto racist if its application leads to a differential outcome that has a disparate impact. Now, this is uh, saying that this is the soft bigotry of low expectations is a vast understatement. This is simply yep. racism. Yep. Okay. Do not, please do not, I repeat for a third time, don't take away the standards of the assessment of human excellence from me, which I were going to use those very same standards to demonstrate my bona fides. You right. expect that I can't succeed and therefore you decide to call the whole thing off? How dare you do that to me? And moreover, you're not just doing it to me. That is the black person who's supposed to be the beneficiary of your softening the standards. We won't ask for the SAT anymore for college admissions. Uh, We won't uh, apply the uh, excess uh, criminal penalty for the possession of a firearm in the commission of a certain crime or whatever it might be, because we know that it's going to have a disparate impact. You're not only... Uh, diminishing the person who's the subject of this uh, supposed uh, 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 benefit, uh, you're removing the assessment, uh, the ability to assess anybody's character at the end of the day. Uh, Don't tell me that affirmative action does not lead to great inflation. I don't believe it. I've been in a college uh, professor for 40 years. And when you admit people to rigorous programs of study like the Georgetown Law Center, or or like any good STEM department or any medical school, and you have criteria of assessing how good they are at solving differential equations, at reading complicated and difficult texts and parsing what has been said to them, at being able to write uh, in a way that is clear and concise and expresses complex thoughts accurately, you have a way of assessing that. It's called the test. And And people do differently on it. And then you decide that you're going to admit the blacks to the medical school, to the engineering school, to the uh, mathematics or physics department, to the et cetera, to the law school on a different criteria. You are going to have to expect that they're going to perform differently ex post facto. Now, exposing that differential performance by the uniform application of standards of assessment is politically unacceptable. And therefore, you trash the standards of assessment. So Heather McDonald is correct. You're threatening the foundations of our civilization. You just watch. You won't be able to tell good from bad. You won't be able to tell high from low. End of rant. Excuse me? I said end of rant. We have here at the Glenn Show the patented rant where I go off for 90 seconds or two minutes about something I really feel strongly about. And I really feel strongly about this. Don't do this to us. Don't do this to our country. The bad faith is just extraordinary. I, I literally cannot understand these college presidents who, and I would ask you, uh, Glenn, to retire the phrase affirmative action and replace it with, with racial preferences, which is much more exact because right. affirmative action still has around it the possibility. Yeah. And occasionally I hear some well-meaning, even a conservative think that we're, we're really still talking about outreach. You know, yeah. we haven't been doing enough outreach. Right. And so that's all we're, our affirmative action is. No, we're talking about racial preferences. 
uh, nobody's against outreach. And if it, if affirmative action had, had, was ever all only about that, and it never was, uh, nobody would be objecting. But in any case, these college presidents and deans of departments who deliberately engineer mismatch uh, and then deny the results and deny that there's a problem, I, I, I just don't know what to say. They are, I, I don't know whether they literally don't know it themselves, that they've somehow managed to insulate themselves from the facts of the uh, challenges and the struggles of black students admitted under preferences. A black student admitted without preferences who is academically competitive with his peers is gonna do as well as his peers. But if, you know, I let's take this out of the race issue and say MIT admits me because it needs more females and this is quite uh, a, a reasonable hypothetical because MIT is about as left-wing an institution in, in the academic sphere as it gets today. So it's admitting females let's say it admits me with a 650 on my math SATs and my peers have 800, there's no way I'm going to keep up in freshman calculus. Uh, and I may, and I'll be encouraged to blame the patriarchy and to blame rape culture of MIT for my struggles. That's what happens to black students. They're encouraged to think, well, the reason you're not doing well in Duke's calculus program, you're, it's not because you've been admitted with over a standard deviation lower math skills than your peers, it's because Duke is racist, even though the only reason you're at Duke is because Duke wants black students so much. And again, one needs to put in the usual disclaimers. I and you and anybody else who's against uh, mismatch and preferences are not saying that blacks should not go to college. They're saying they should go to college under the same conditions as everybody else, which is with a reasonable chance to be competitive with their peers. But to the larger point about disparate impact and, and civilization coming down, I mean, it's, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that elite whites have just given up on blacks, that they have just decided that this is a problem that's not going to be solved. And therefore, the paternalism is so massive that they will not ever expect them to live up to the same standards. They are tearing down every academic stand and as to return to where we started out, uh, behavioral standards. Yes. This is the key. You know, I a lot of my fellow conservatives will get on Fox or whatever and say, well, we, you know, we really have to start enforcing the law again and and bad, bad George Soros and uh, yes. we can't enforce, you know, unwind the criminal law, but they miss the key issue. You can you can talk about reactivating policing, reactivating prosecution till you're blue in the face, unless you address why, for the last two decades, really, we have been slowly unwinding criminal law enforcement. You're not going to make any progress, and the reason we have is because, sadly any enforcement of the criminal law does have a disparate impact on blacks and the reason is not because the criminal justice system is racist it's because the law breaking is exponentially higher on the part of blacks and this is something that america doesn't want to talk about but that is why we're we've got these progressive prosecutors who are saying we're not going to prosecute trespass we're not going to prosecute resisting arrest we're not going to prosecute theft 
We're not going to prosecute gun possession crimes. Yeah, it's I know. If you do that, uh, you are going to have a disparate impact on black criminals. And if you stop enforcing those laws again, we return to the question, don't black lives matter? Don't the 10,000 blacks, more than all whites and Hispanics combined, who were killed last year in this homicide surge, why don't they matter to the left? And I, well, I, I would have an explanation. I don't have a ready explanation, but I want to make an observation. I think that black leadership, and I don't mean the head of the NAACP, I mean someone like the former president of the United States, Barack Hussein Obama, and his wife, Michelle Obama. But I don't just mean them. I'm not just trying to single them out. I'm saying, who will give this speech? The speech would yeah. go in effect. The young men who are taking the lives of six-year-old and eight-year-old sitting on their auntie's lap on the front porch are barbaric and despicable. Yeah. They deserve every moment of condemnation. I have no brief for them whatsoever. Don't you even begin to tell me about how they grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. They are criminals and they deserve to be dealt with. Okay? And, and mean it. Give that speech and mean it. Give it repeatedly and mean it. Run for Congress on that speech and mean it. Uh, that would allow both some white supremacists to say some stuff. They are a, a discredited fringe who we don't even have to waste our time talking about. It would allow, however, people like Joseph Biden to not have to go to Jacob Blake's uh, bedside, metaphorically speaking, while he's running for president. Jacob Blake, a miscreant for whom a city burned down because he got shot while he was trying to kidnap this woman's children with a knife in his hand. But Joseph Biden wouldn't have to go to Jacob Blake because um, Clyburn in South Carolina would still back his political play, regardless of the speech that he gave about the Jacob Blakes of this world. But as it is, Joseph Biden, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'm saying he doesn't really believe it and that he's crassly cynical when he goes metaphorically to Jacob Blake's bedside and tells the country about how he is anguished about Jacob Blake's suffering. He has to do that because he wants to win an election. And the black leadership who gather together, you talk about ballot harvesting. I'm, I'm harvesting hundreds of thousands of ballots now, millions of ballots as I conduct the national discourse about race and justice in this country. They won't take the side of the people walking on the streets being preyed upon by these carjacking criminals, by these uh, uh, armed robbing thugs who are gunning them down. They won't take their side. The leaders, the black people, the black leaders and spokesmen, the mayor of Chicago. And that makes it hard for anybody else to do so either. I agree. And, you know, we know that Obama did give that one good speech on Father's Day in, in 2008 in Chicago, where he, he opened by talking about the facts, the data that we know from social science on the consequences of family breakdown. Of course, he pivoted at the end towards, well, the, you know, the solution is more government services, but that was something he never really built upon, uh, tragically. And uh, yeah, the defining deviance down, the, the paternalism, the lack of expectations, the sense that you need to constantly apologize and not hold blacks to the same standards as 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 whites would expect of themselves, I think is is says a lot about uh, what the white elites actually think about blacks. That having been said, it may be that 
you and I are asking too much, that it may be too much for any group to look at itself critically and honestly in public. Um, I, I don't know whether whites do that either. You know, we now have a strain of political commentary on the right uh, about, oh, poor working class whites in Appalachia and the opioid crisis. And I'll say this, I mean, this, this maybe plays into the discourse of the left. It does kind of look like uh, America got softer in its rhetoric about drug use and drug crime when whites started getting addicted to opioids as opposed <laughs> to talking about crack. I'm not sure. But in any case, you arguably some of the sort of populist uh, nationalist strain that that now, you know, in, in kind of a Tucker Carlson mode that is very concerned about um, the the struggles of the of the poor white class is also not willing to say, well, you know, you guys should just pull up your bootstraps for God's sakes and and get married and stay in school and don't start taking opioids. Uh, so so maybe maybe you know the the kind of wanting to whitewash things or not not be honest in public is 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 inevitable and we're asking too much but how you then get out of this cultural breakdown because again i would absolutely second you in not mincing words in the least i mean i just don't what sort of upbringing leads to a 12 year old spraying bullets and and i would also say some of the you talk about white supremacists, and this is something you've worried about in the past, but but I'm just going to speak very honestly here. Uh, blacks commit 88% of all interracial crime between whites and blacks and blacks and whites. And uh, some of it is really, really brutal. Uh, in St. Paul, in December, within two days of each other, there was like an 81 and an 85-year-old grandmother who were just ruthlessly beaten by these teen thugs. Uh, they were pushed to the ground. They suffered concussions. Their faces were just bloodied. Uh, you know, what, what sort of upbringing leads somebody to either spray bullets mindlessly at houses and, and, and kill the inhabitants, including children, or to prey on the elderly like that? And, and, you know, we've seen the bad faith of the press in talking about anti-Asian hate crimes. You know, that's why everybody went nuts about the Atlanta spa shootings, because it was a white guy for once, and that had nothing to do with anti-Asian hate crime. It had to do with religious torment over his sexual yearnings. And we're ignoring these brutal black on Asian attacks, which are the norm, whether it's in the Bay Area or here. And and the 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 elites turn their eyes away from it and will literally lie about what's going on and claim that the attacks on elderly Asians are being done by whites. And, and Asian activists will claim that as well. The lefties claim that as well. So it's really our, our sort of racial taboos in this country are just amazing. Well, not the Asians. I know Wei Wa Chen and George Lee, uh, who are leading the fight to keep the exam schools to, from having the 
get rid of the exam and uh, would have agreed with you about this last point about how the press are keeping the cover on the fact that most of the attacks in New York against Asians have been perpetrated by by blacks, which is why I'm for de-racializing the discussion about crime, punishment, and policing. I'm not for defunding the police. I'm for de-racializing the police. I'm for not assuming that uh, Derek Chauvin's motivation was racial when he uh, acted as he did vis-a-vis George Floyd. Uh, I'm, I'm for talking about policing in terms of policing, not in terms of white cops and black innocent or would-be innocents and so forth. Because if you want to talk about these matters in racial terms, you can't help somebody from doing the little bit of research it takes to find out what you just got through saying, which is that there's a lot of black on white crime in this country. Some of it is very ugly. And um, they may not say so in polite company because it's politically incorrect to do so. But there are a lot of white people who deeply resent it. So, Heather, actually, I think, you know, your point that you can understand Maybe why it is that uh, blacks are reluctant to talk about the family because whites are reluctant to talk about their stuff too. That you realize that the the panic about crack uh, in the late eighties uh, was one thing, and that the reaction to the opioid epidemic is another, opioid epidemic is another, and that might have something to do with race. That you wonder why it is that some black people are not so so angry that they hate their country no matter what given all that happened in the 20th century after the end of slavery in terms of excluding of blacks people would be surprised to hear that from you uh i'm not but i just want to underscore that that that's who you really are not darth vader thank you <laughs> i let me i would just i would just say um i'm surprised to hear you use the term panic about crack glenn because you know that panic moral panic is is a is a sarcastic term that is meant to uh you know discredit the idea i would say that the the reaction to crack was valid i mean that was that was as you know i don't need to tell you oh this. no it was a horrible problem i mean i was addicted to crack cocaine in the late 1980s to be honest with you i spent six months in re- rehab and recovery and whatnot it was a terrible thing but a lot of dead bodies around i was lucky that i was not one of them to be honest with you and that many, many black communities spoke out through their political representatives on behalf of punitive reactions to the crack e- epidemic, as has been documented by people like Michael Fortner. Right. Uh, they supported the crime bill that uh, Clinton is vilified as a racist for having enacted. But in fact, he had a lot of black congressional and uh, local constituent uh, support and so on. Even the 100 to 1, even the 100 to 1 disparity in triggering the minimum sentence for cocaine yep. possession was supported by African Americans. There's a sociologist, a young guy at Harvard called Adoner Usmani, U S M A N I, who you will want to follow as he comes along. But he's done some very careful uh, empirical work on the uh, law and order voting of state legislatures in the South. Uh, in the period when the crime wave was peaking through the 80s and so on, and and has uh, got a lot of evidence that uh, the more black the legislature, the more punitive the the response to criminal law. And he uses an instrumental variables technique to make sure that he's got the endogeneity problem. It's a, it's a really good uh, piece of work. That's uh, uh, Donner Usmani. But anyway, and, and you know, Fortner's work on on reading the Amsterdam News, you know, in the in the fifties and sixties yeah. about about uh, heroin. I mean, it, the language is extraordinary. 
So yes, and if I can just take the opportunity of this amazing platform you've got here, Glenn, to put out one number as well uh, that I've recently have been generating and regenerating. Do you say you want to deracialize policing? Absolutely. Uh, but let's be honest again about uh, where the threats lie and the risks lie. Uh, last year, now, when I, when I calculated this coming number, the number of police officers who'd been murdered, feloniously murdered last year was 67. This was through like the end of um, November of this year. Now it's the final tally for 2021 is 73. So I crunched some numbers. How many unarmed blacks were killed last year by the police, shot, fatally shot by the police last year? I think a lot of, of viewers will say maybe in the hundreds, if not in the thousands, certainly in the dozens. Uh, well, last year, the police shot, fatally shot four allegedly unarmed blacks. And that's a very liberal classification system by the Washington Post that will include people that are grabbing an officer's gun and beating him with it. But if you do the numbers on a per capita basis and compare those 67 or now 73 uh, police officers who've been killed in a, in a law enforcement body nationally of about 675,000 to the four unarmed blacks in a population of self-identified blacks of about 45, 47 million, and then take into account the fact that historically blacks have made up at least 40% of all cop killers nationwide, black males, even though they're 6% of the population. If we assume that for this year, that makes a police officer 400 times as likely to be killed by a black civilian as an unarmed black is to be killed by a police officer. So, you know, the the idea that it's the the big problem here is police shooting unarmed blacks is wrong on many counts. I mean, it's wrong when you compare the four unarmed blacks who were killed last year to the 10,000 over 10,000 uh, or this year rather, well, yeah, it is now last year, 2021, to the over 10,000 blacks who were killed overwhelmingly by other black criminals. And then when we're talking about cops being shot themselves, the, the, the narrative, again, it just doesn't work out. Uh, but nobody wants to look at those numbers because they're just inconvenient. Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. I mean... <laughs> There's a response to what you said uh, now in terms of the numerical calculation. Ideally, we'd have no black uh, unarmed or white unarmed, for that matter, killed by police. And, and ideally, even if one police officer were to be killed, that would be a tragedy. But if only one were killed and no black young men were killed, this is almost our perfect world. The ratio that you just calculated would be infinite. So, so the ratio itself is not so informative, but the point is well taken. Thank you very much, Heather, for coming on The Glenn Show. It's been wonderful talking to you, um, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Me too, Glenn. Thank you so much. It's always a privilege.